Well, if you would turn back with me to the Song of Solomon, we are going to be in chapter 6 this morning through chapter 8. Two more sermons to go this morning and Lord willing next week, and we will conclude our brief series in this poem, this love story, the Song of Solomon. So what have we seen so far in our journey through this book? Well, in chapters 1 through 3, we meet a young couple who has fallen in love and began a process of courtship or dating. And before getting married, as their love and desire for each other begins to grow, they commit, by God's grace, to remaining pure as they seek the support of their spiritual community around them, including their parents. They were soon married, as we saw in chapter 3 and chapter 4, and they consummated their marriage. And after pledging that they would belong to each other forever and going on their honeymoon, as we saw last week, they get into a bit of a fight. We saw how selfishness in the couple created a rift of offense between them. And so the husband comes home, and he's expecting intimacy after a long day at the office, so to speak, and she declines. And aware of her own insensitivity, she jumps up to accommodate his initiation, only to find that when she arrives at the door, he's gone. And then she engages in another search, looking in frantic, pleading for him, scouring the streets again to find the one whom her soul loves. And after being beaten by the watchman, a picture, I think, of the guilt and inner turmoil she was experiencing, the couple are reunited. And that's where we left the story last week. They've gotten married, they've had their first fight, they've come back together, what now? Well, this morning what we're going to see is what reconciliation looks like. What reconciliation looks like on a horizontal level between people, specifically married couples, and what happens vertically in terms of reconciliation with God. First of all, I want us to look at the need for reconciliation. This is going to dip back a little bit into our text last week in chapter 5 and chapter 6 before we get into the newer material this morning. So the first point, the need for reconciliation. I want to say two things about that. First of all, our resistance to him. Dear ones, is it not the case that as Christ, the Lord Jesus, seeks us in our selfishness and laziness, we are so often prone to neglect his advances toward us. That just as the husband came to the wife, knocking at the door, desiring to be with her, so because of our own selfishness or insensitivity or laziness, we do the same to the Lord Jesus. We do it in the daily reading of his word and prayer. When Christ offers himself again to us to pay a daily visit to sanctify our souls, but we are too inconvenienced to accommodate. In daily prayer, Christ reveals himself to us in a way that he doesn't to the world. In the gathering of the church, Christ comes to us here this morning and says, like he said to that initial gathering, peace be unto you, coming to bring his peace to his disciples who were fearful of him. But on that first resurrection morning, he shows up in their worship gathering and he pronounces peace. And that's what he does for us every Sunday. As we come back, he pronounces peace over us, renews peace in our souls. And then the Lord's Supper. Remember in Luke 24, where Jesus makes himself known to those disciples in the breaking of the bread. 
And yet how often do we neglect to take part in that? These are times, daily prayer, daily time in the word, corporate worship, the Lord's Supper, where Christ is coming to us. And it's where he will manifest himself to us. And in those acts of worship, we, we, we begin to say, it's the Lord. He's here. There he is. And yet these are times that, that our, while our Savior wishes to draw near to us, we often aren't accommodating his visits, either by our non-attendance or by our inattentiveness. How do we often respond to these overtures from the Savior? Well, Robert Murray McShane summarizes our temptations well. He says, The hour of daily devotion is time with Christ in which he seeks and knocks and speaks and waits. And yet, dear believers, how often are you slothful and make vain excuses? You have something else to attend to or you're set upon some worldly comfort and you do not let the Savior in. The Lord's table is also the place where believers hear him knocking, saying, Open to me. How often is this opportunity lost through slothfulness, through lack of stirring up the gift that is in us, through lack of attention, through thoughts about worldly things, through unwillingness to take trouble about it? I've put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I've washed my feet. How shall I defile them? He continues, Doubtless there are some children of God here who did not find Christ last time at his table, who went away unrefreshed and uncomforted. See here the cause? It was your own slothfulness. Christ was knocking, but you would not let him in. Do not go about to blame God for it. Search your own heart and you will find the true cause. Perhaps you came without deliberation, without self-examination and prayer, without duly stirring up faith. Perhaps you were thinking about your worldly gains and losses and you missed the Savior. Remember then, the fault is yours, not Christ. He was knocking. You would not let him in. Brothers and sisters, we need to examine our own hearts to see whether any of that is true of us. We might think somehow that Jesus has abandoned us when he's not going anywhere. He said, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. So if we don't have some sense of his nearness, who left? Secondly, our search for him. When this happens, what happens to us? Do we not, as Christians, respond the way the bride responded? When we are left restless because our beloved has walked away from the door, what do we do? Do we not immediately go on a search? When in our sinful selfishness we resist, Christ advances. When our slothful souls are really awakened to feel that Christ has withdrawn withdrawn himself and is gone, what do we do? Do you not pine for his return? Do you not desire to come near to him again? I've often found that after long seasons of spiritual dryness, which I have known often in my life, that taking a morning or taking some time, maybe a a walk, and praying something like, Father, I've really missed you, and I've wandered away, and I would really like to come home now, precedes a renewal of intimacy with the Lord. I'd offer that to you. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you need to say those sorts of things to the Lord himself. The world can rest quite well. And if you're worldly, you have no problem if Christ leaves. You can keep on about your business. But the true Christian cannot sit satisfied in that state. This is the difference between someone who knows Christ in their head and someone who knows Christ in their heart. If you know Christ in your head, and you come to church and you get all the doctrine and all the teaching and all the singing, but there's, but there's no affection for Christ in your heart, you won't know if he's gone. But if he's in your heart and you love him 
then you will listen, you will seek, you will call, you will search as for fine treasure to find him again. Because your soul is restless until it rests again in Christ. So you return to the word and to prayer and to corporate worship and to the Lord's Supper with renewed fervency and desire. And yet you still don't get answers. You still don't sense his nearness. So you you come to a brother or a sister or a pastor seeking counsel about what might be wrong. You ask them to speak into your life, deal faithfully and plainly with your soul, and yet you still sense a distance. Or you ask the Holy Spirit to take away the veil and show me your show show me my sin. Help me to see what is driving you away. So we run to Christian friends. We ask them to help us, pray for us. This is what the beloved does. I I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find him whom my soul loves, tell him I am sick with love. And if this is not the case, and if if this has never been the case for you, if you have never known a sickness or longing for the love of Christ, do you know Jesus? Do you need to be reconciled? Maybe that is the message for you this morning, that in this first point about the need for reconciliation, you realize I haven't been reconciled to Christ at all. I've been living oblivious to him. Yeah, I know things in my head and I know Bible doctrine in my head and all that stuff, but I don't have a living, vital, ongoing relationship with him where, where I know his nearness and sense his nearness. Now, I'm not talking about some sort of emotional roller coaster up and down. I'm talking about an ongoing, steady, following walk with Jesus where you know when you're near to him and you know when you're not. And so maybe this morning, well, that's exactly what you need to do is cry out to him. Go search the streets, as it were, looking and allow the conviction of sin to settle in upon you until you come to Christ and fall on him. He will be found by those who seek him. If you seek him with all your heart, you'll find him. That's the need for reconciliation, and we all need it, believer or unbeliever, Christian or non-Christian, whether we've been in the faith a long time or a relatively short time. We need to be ongoing pursuers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to recognize our resistance to him, and we need to recognize the search that that creates in our hearts in the midst of that restlessness. So secondly, we come to the means of reconciliation. How does the Lord address that? How does the Lord address our resistance and our search for him? And that's what we find in our text this morning. We're going to begin reading in Song of Solomon chapter 6, verse 4. Notice, as soon as the bride is searching, the beloved is already there. We're going to read verses 4 through 10. The husband responds, You're beautiful as Terza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins, not one of them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are sixty queens and eighty concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the holy one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? Notice also the beginning of chapter 7 where he praises her again. Chapter 7, verse 1. 
How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabim. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, which looks, across, looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in your tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. O oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine." First of all, consider this husband's faithful love. Consider the husband's faithful love. After such a huge fight as these newlyweds had, what would many husbands, including what I'm tempted to do at times and perhaps knowingly have even done, hold a grudge? They'd be grumpy because their wives did not immediately jump up to answer the door when they knocked. Or the wife would be miffed that the husband appeared so easily offended. Regardless, the results would be the same. A cold shoulder, a blaming of the other person for what happened, feeling morally superior to the other for a time. These attitudes are unfortunately all too commonplace among us because they are just the native, fallen, reflexive response we have as sinners. But how does this husband respond? Instead of scolding her, he lavishes the same praise on her that he gave her when they first fell in love. He reaffirms his love for his bride. Dear married brothers and sisters, is this not a model for how we resolve conflict? The man doesn't hold a grudge over the way his wife hurt him. He doesn't dredge up 17 previous times. She's done the same thing and asked the judge for those counts to be taken into consideration against her. As I was reading this week in various articles and things like this related to the Song of Solomon, I came across an article where a man had actually kept a spreadsheet on his wife of all the times she had neglected to pursue intimacy with him. Brothers and sisters, that is messed up. That is messed up. Can you see this husband doing that? In light of his response, he didn't even have a spreadsheet. And he wouldn't have one if he, if he could get one. He didn't keep a record of wrongs. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. And yet this guy did. In the name of Christ? Well, he can be assured of this. If that goes unrepented of, Christ's going to keep every record of wrong against him too. Although this bride left her husband outside in the closed door in the rain, he provides an open door for her to come back without groveling. Upon her return, she's met with unchanging love and increased affection. She's not met with a whiff of condemnation or retribution. Notice that even as the man recites all the ways in which she is still beautiful in his eyes, he tactfully avoids the immediate subject of the fight. He never brings it up. He affirms his deep respect for her, his need for her, as well as his lifelong commitment to her. He makes no threats. He makes no accusations. He simply overwhelms her with words celebrating her worth and value to him. Brothers and sisters, this is grace marriage. <laughs> Isn't it? And brothers and sisters, this is exactly how our God responds to us as our divine husband. 
when our divided and selfish hearts are constantly closing the door in God's face and we're too lazy or self-centered to get out of bed and pursue a deeper relationship with Him, we find the garden of His love is still constantly and beautifully in bloom. As Spurgeon says, the eyes of Christ's chosen ones still overcome Him. When we come back, we don't grovel. He doesn't put us under penance. We don't have to pay Him back. We don't have to overcome all the wrongs we've done. He is there to meet us with the love that never left. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's steadfast love is on those who fear him. It never wavers. It never changes. It's always the same. And you can be assured that even as you come to him and all your resistance and all your searching and all your lukewarmness and all your half-heartedness, that he will be there full 100-proof love for you when you arrive. Phil Riken says, in the spiritual mystery of our marriage to Christ, Jesus is a one-woman man, so to speak. He's never wavered in his affection for his people, for everyone who belongs to him by faith. As imperfect as we are, he sees us as the perfect people for him. So whenever there is a break in our relationships, which, always, which is always our fault, never his, he comes to us again and tells us how beautiful we are, how much he loves us, and how pure we are in his sight. Jesus gives us every reassurance that even after everything we have done wrong, we are still the object of his affection. Isn't our Savior great? Isn't he glorious? Isn't he precious? How can the Lord do this to us? Have you ever thought, how can the Lord be so faithful to me when I am so unfaithful to him? How can he continually respond this way? Well, part of it, friends, is he's not like us. He doesn't deal with our sin the way we deal with others' sin. We withdraw from them. We get cold toward them. We hold things against them. He doesn't do any of that. We need to be more like him. But how can he do this in light of his justice? In light of the justice that demands punishment for sin? I mean, our rejection of him and our coldness toward him is blameworthy is horrendous considering the greatness of the one we have offended. Our sin is shore to shore. It's enormous. So how can he do this when our sin should bring about a divorce decree from the Lord, where he sends us away for our spiritual indifference and adultery? Well, that's the second part of the means of reconciliation we're going to talk about. Not just our husband's heart and faithful love for us, but his sacrificial love. Now, after the king talks about his bride's beauty again here in chapter 6 and chapter 7 and communicates his intention to enjoy renewed intimacy with her, he makes a really striking statement in chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. I want you to see this. Look at chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Now, obviously, there's erotic imagery going on there, which is intended to communicate marital intimacy. But I want you to notice something. The word rendered palm tree is made of the same consonants and vowels as the name Tamar. Now, you say, okay, what what significance does that have? Well, let me remind you of two specific biblical instances where Tamar is discussed. In Genesis 38, Judah used his daughter-in-law Tamar as a prostitute. It was a wicked sin against God. And it's contrasted with Joseph's righteousness in Genesis 39. 
But in 2 Samuel 13, Amnon seized Tamar, his sister, and raped her, another horrendous sin. These two women, victimized in the biblical story, forced prostitution and rape, are some of the most horrific and grievous sins recorded in biblical history. And yet these horrors that are associated with the name Tamar in Genesis 38 and 2 Samuel 13 are redeemed by God here in Song of Solomon 7. For here the husband approaches his Tamar, his palm tree, and says he will lay hold of its fruit, literally seize his Tamar. And yet he's doing it in honor and righteousness instead of ungodliness and unrighteousness. He's rewriting the script. Yahweh, the Lord, is rewriting the script of Israel's history, which has failed in numerous points to obey him and sinned grievously against him. And here is God doing, taking what Judah and Amnon did in shame and sin and overriding that bad and corrupt file. God is redeeming in holiness and purity what Israel has done in wickedness and impurity. And we see this again in chapter 7, verse 13. Notice this, where the bride says, The man rakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. Now, mandrakes is an unusual word for us. We don't use that. But where the bride speaks of this, it's recalling another tale in Israel's past. Remember when Leah bought Jacob? from Rachel at the price of manrakes in Genesis 30. God is redeeming that broken situation here. He's saying Solomon is here pointing to a king who is rewriting history by reliving it well, by reliving it in righteousness, in, in the ways that Israel failed to relive it. Undoing the wrongs that Israel had committed by setting them right. God is living as this faithful husband in Israel's place. And this typifies the one who will come and relive the history of Israel in righteousness, the true bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus was obedient where the nation of Israel transgressed. Jesus took the responsibility for the nation's sin, for our sin. He lived the righteous life that Israel and we should have lived. He was put forward by the Father as a sacrifice of atonement. Dear friends, if you're here this morning and are not following Jesus... How are you going to deal with the dark parts of your story like Genesis 38 and 2 Samuel 13? Yeah, there may not be prostitution and rape in your background. There may be. But there may not be. But there's still dark secrets of your past that you don't want anybody else to know about, but God knows all too well. What are you going to do with those parts of your story? What are you going to do with the secret shame that you feel, the shame that you don't want anyone to know about? If you take these things to Jesus, friends, you will believe that by his death he paid the penalty and that by his resurrection he conquered your sin and that you can be forgiven and washed white as snow. He came to deal with your shame, to remove that as far as the east is from the west. Your corrupt files in your life can be overwritten in the software upgrade of the righteousness of Christ. And because of your faith in Him, the Father will reckon you as righteous as well. The Lord will take the Tamars of your history and make them the palm trees of the Song of Solomon. So dear fellow believer in Christ, know this, your Tamars are not part of your story anymore. They have been written into the blood of Christ. 
God has moved your judgment day already from the future to the past. You are forgiven. You are blameless in his sight. You are dearly loved by him. The last word spoken by Christ before his death, it is finished, which we will, Lord willing, remember in our Good Friday service this Friday. They have now become the first words for you as a new creation in Christ. The pressure is off. Now live in light of who you are. So it's the husband's faithful love and it's his sacrificial love that redeems this mess. And it's the same for us, brothers and sisters. In the midst of our mess, our resistance, our searching, our longing, our trying to figure out life, our messing it up, our sinning along the way, our need to be reconciled to God, it's our God's faithful love and his sacrificial love for us in Christ that builds the bridge of reconciliation back. Now, thirdly, what's the fruit of reconciliation look like? So when we're loved by the Lord in this way, with his faithful love and his sacrificial love, what's the result? What comes from that? Well, let's first of all, look, let's look at what comes from this couple, and then what we learn from what comes from our relationship with the Lord as a result. We're going to see two things again. First of all, let's read chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. Come, my beloved, let us go into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. And there I will give my love. Sorry, I'm reading chapter 7, verses 11 through 13, and then into 8. So I told you 6. We'll come back to 6 in just a second. Chapter 7, verses 11 through 13, picking up at 12. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The man rakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. Verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 1. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I have found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother. She who used to teach me, I would give you spice wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His Left hand is under my head, his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Getting a little steamy here. Look at chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsmen a prince. Return, return, O Shulamite. That's the female version of Solomon. It's the bride's, what he calls the bride. Return, return, that you may look upon me. So we see the result of this conflict in chapter 6. When she goes down into the garden to see him again, the bride is concerned that their conflict might have caused permanent damage in their relationship. But what happens? Deeper intimacy happens. They, they enjoy, as a result of their conflict, a deeper intimacy that they, than they had before the conflict. That's important. That has a lot to do with the Christian life and the trials we experience in this life, the difficulties that we have. She's not quite sure, the bride is, that is. She's not quite sure what she will find when she comes back to the garden. She's not certain if she's going to discover that their love is still ripe as it was on the wedding night, or that more time will be needed before they can again enjoy the sweet fruit of their relationship together. But to her delight, when she arrives, he sweeps her off her feet. That's what verse 13 or verse 12 says. Before I was even aware, my desire, that is 
my man, my husband, set me among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. He swept me off my feet all over again. The pomegranates were in full bloom, and she enthusiastically was welcomed back. Even the king's companions welcomed her back, and this increases their intimacy all the more. Now we learn something about a key fruit of conflict and reconciliation here. It serves deeper intimacy. That's the first fruit, deeper intimacy. It serves to deepen the intimacy of the relationship when it's responded to properly. See, we naturally want our relationships, including our relationship with God, to be hiccup-free. Just smooth sailing all the way to the kingdom of heaven. No bumps in the road, minimal trials, maximum creature comforts. God loves you far too much to give you that life. Do you realize it's the love of God that keeps your life from being easy? Do you have that category in your theology? You must as a Christian. Otherwise, you will constantly think that he doesn't love you because he's not making your load lighter. Oftentimes, his love will increase your load, burden you down to the point of breaking, so that what? You will know him. He wants you to know him more than he wants to give you an easy life. And the reason he wants to give you an easy life is beca- or not give you an easy life is because he wouldn't love you if he didn't give you himself but gave you an easy life. What kind of, if he's the greatest love in the universe, but he gives you all this stuff to comfort you on the way to hell, how does that make your life good? But if he will enter into your life periodically with difficulty, giving you, sending you trial here and sorrow there and challenge here and difficulty there, but it results in a deeper intimacy with him, it's well worth it, friends. While we want our relationship with God to be smooth and easy, God would rather have it real and deep. Why does God make our paths so hard when he has the power to make them straighter? Why does God make us wait when it's in his power to fulfill our every wish and dream? Why do so many challenges accompany us in our jobs? Why are there so many struggles with our finances and health? Why are so many repeated relational blunders and continual struggles with besetting sins and deep and abiding loneliness present in the hearts of Christians? Why does it seem that sometimes he turns away and leaves us alone in our pain? Why is he so maddeningly frustrating at times in his determination not to fix our problems? Because he loves you. While there are many true answers, the most foundational one is this. God is committed to building a relationship with us that is deep, mature, and lasting, which are qualities that any relationship can only achieve through many challenges. If you've had any relationship with any person for any period of time, any deep friendship, any marriage that has lasted over the long haul, your deepening intimacy has not happened apart from many challenges. It's the same in our relationship with God. It's only through difficulty and trial that we learn to give up our innate self-dependence and rely on God. And it's only through our unanswered prayers for relief through deliverance that God answers our prayers with the relief of the deliverer. And it's here that we learn not to trust just in our own wisdom, but to lean on his and his love and his goodness, where these things become a lived reality and not just a theoretical concept. It's through repeated sin that we learn the magnitude and all sufficiency of grace, and through it's our repeated unfaithfulness that we find the true beauty of his faithfulness. 
Now, our relationship with Christ is variable in this life. It goes up and down. We go through cycles of being closer to him and being less close to him, feeling more of him, feeling less of him, and so on. And this is the point. Because even in that, it points us to the beyond. God is stoking the longing for deeper intimacy every time he withholds deeper intimacy. God never fully satisfies us in this world, but instead constantly stretches our desire for heaven. Not satisfaction, but the expansion of holy desire is the surest proof of God's presence with us. In other words, intimacy with God is not just about feeling spiritually great. It's about wanting more and more and more and more of God and being aware of the gap. Learning to realize that you're thirsting for more of Christ. Letting Christ do whatever Christ wants in your life to clear out more space for him is the work of God in your life. Julian Hardiman reminds us, we do this with the realistic knowledge that we will never fully know Christ until we meet him in glory. We have to harness that sense of longing, harness that sense of absence to drive us on to open ourselves up more to him, to receive what he wants to give us in any particular moment or phase of our lives. This in turn will push us outside of ourselves in the fierce love of service to God and to others in this life until we meet him in the perfect intimacy of the next life. Second and finally, what's the second and final fruit of reconciliation? Relational healing. Relational healing. In chapter 7, verse 10, the bride restates the words she spoke in chapter 6, verse 3. I am my beloved's. I am my beloved's. In chapter 2, verse 16, she said, my beloved is mine and I am his. In chapter 6, verse 3, she says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And now in chapter 7, verse 10, she says, I am my beloved and his desire is for me. Now, I want you to see something and appreciate something here. The term desire here in chapter 7, verse 10 is only used three times in the Hebrew Bible. And two of them are in very negative circumstances, just like we saw with the palm tree in Tamar. I want you to turn back with me for just a second. Hold your finger in the Song of Solomon and go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Or page 2 of your Bible. Look at verse 16. Genesis 3.16. Part of the curse that was pronounced upon the woman. God has already pronounced the curse on the serpent due to sin. In verses 14 and 15, he's going to pronounce it on Adam in 17. Now he deals with Eve in verse 16. He says to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire, this is the same word that's used in Song of Solomon 7.10, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now look at chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7 is the other place where this word desire is used, and I think it explains what chapter 3, verse 16 means. Chapter 4, verse 7. If you do well, God says to Cain, prior to his sin, if you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So in Genesis 3.16, the word desire appears in the curse on Adam and Eve that would result in the woman's desire being for her husband and her husband would be ruling over her. 
From Genesis 4-7, we see what that means. The Lord told Cain that sin's desire was for him and that he must rule over it. These passages are mutually interpretive. Sin's desire was to master Cain, to control him, to dictate his choices. And that seems to be the nature of the fallen desire the woman will be cursed with to have in chapter 3, verse 16. She was made to help the man, but God's word of judgment against sin is that instead of wanting to help, she will desire to control. So just as Cain needed to master sin by ruling over his sinful inclination against Abel, the man would rule harshly over the woman in response. So there'd be this radical relational discord. There'd be this desire for control on the part of the woman. There'd just be aggressive, almost abusive rule that would categorize the man. So in Genesis 3.16, while God places a curse on the relationships between men and women in marriage... We have a cure in Song of Solomon 7 for how the woman will relinquish control and how the man will respond, not with iron-fisted rule, but with self-sacrificial love. The way the bride speaks in response to her husband's love is the reversal of the Genesis curse. You see it? She relinquishes the desire for control with the words, I am my beloved's. And the husband relinquishes his desire for rule with the words, his desires for me. Song 710 depicts the setting right of relationships, the relational healing that comes when the gospel is embraced. The, the, the curse that marriages are under oftentimes with relational conflict is owing to sin in the world. But what can be happened is that when each partner embraces their faithful love and sacrificial love of their Redeemer, they begin to relate to one another differently. Dear ones, when the Lord doesn't reverse everything, the curse affects in this life. While He doesn't reverse everything, as we've just seen, for deeper intimacy purposes, He does change things. He does affect relationships. He does enable people to relate better to one another. He does grant a heart of forgiveness and bring marriages back from the brink of death. He does restore and renew and redeem friendships. He does enable believers to treat each other with grace and persevere through difficult and trying seasons of conflict. Don't give up hope. Don't think that life until heaven is just one misery fest. It isn't. There is tons of relational healing and blessing that God pours into our lives. So let's lean into the Lord. Let's rely on Him. And let's see what things He might be be pleased to do around us as we hope in Him. And rest in the fact, brothers and sisters, that one day soon, one day very, very soon, all these curses that we experience in this world are going to be rolled back. And we're going to enter into the deepest joy and intimacy possible. Though we often resist our king and search for him now, our king and husband's faithful and sacrificial love will bring us to the garden of deepest intimacy and give us a place where we will richly feast with all of our brothers and sisters in ultimate relational healing forever and ever. Praise the Lord, that day is coming, and it's even closer now than when we first believed. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for the Song of Solomon, for the ways in which it demonstrates your grace, the ways in which it shows us your love, the ways in which it communicates to us 
the vibrancy and magnetism of your love for your people. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love us with such a contra-conditional love. It's not just unconditional. It's contra-conditional. It's against what we deserve. Lord, we're not born neutral in this world, and we have certainly not lived neutral lives. We have resisted you, and some of us have been brought to search for you, and others of us are still searching. Lord, lead us all to your faithful, sacrificial love again and renew our hearts so that whatever comes this week in whatever form, trials and troubles or joys and blessings, Lord, may we all trace it to your heart as an expression of your love for us and a desire for deeper intimacy with us. And may you heal relationships in our body. May you heal relationships that are broken, marriages that are hurting, struggling, friendships that are struggling, brothers and sisters not at peace with one another. May you bring about healing there. May you relationally heal our relationship with you if there needs to be fresh repentance while our vital communion has not been or permanent communion has not been broken with you. Nevertheless, maybe our living experience with you has been in a state of flux or wandering or rebellion. Lord, bring us to our senses and bring us back home and envelop us again in your arms to receive the only love that is better than life. We ask this in the name of who, the one whose love it is, Jesus Christ. Amen.